Welcome to On the Other Side. Before we get into today's episode, a quick word from our sponsor, Forefront. Forefront is a community and media network for the explorers, builders, and artists at the frontier of collective creation on-chain. Forefront has an incredible newsletter that I cannot recommend enough. You can subscribe at forefront.market slash subscribe. You'll hear more about this later in the show, but for now, let's dive into this episode. I am here with Jill Gunter from Espresso. Jill, I'm so excited to have you on the pod. It's great to be here. Yeah, I feel like uh, I have long admired you and your work, so I feel like in a way this has been a long time coming. Likewise, and I'm so excited to chat today. Um, You've been in crypto a while. You've seen a lot of things. Maybe we can start with how you got down, how you went down the crypto rabbit hole and what you've been doing in the space ever since. Yeah, it's been a minute. Um, So I started out my career on Wall Street. So I very much came into crypto through that more kind of finance, curious about like financial innovation perspective. Uh, Specifically what I was doing on Wall Street, I was trading uh, Latin American debt. So I was trading Argentine government bonds and Venezuelan government bonds and frankly dealing with a lot of these economies that had a lot of problems, be it hyperinflation, uh, be it capital controls, et cetera. Uh, And it was actually a colleague based in Argentina at the time, this is about 10 years ago now, who first told me about Bitcoin. And he was very excited about it and sort of like, you know, this is going to be the next big thing and I'm using it to get my money offshore. And I'm kind of here like, okay, you're working at like a big Wall Street institution. Surely there's better ways than this sketchy, you know, kind of underground product to to move your money around. But he was he was a big believer in it, and rightly so, and uh, and got me down the rabbit hole. So I then, not quite promptly, but shortly thereafter, departed Wall Street um, and embarked on yeah this long and winding career in crypto. Um, and since then, I've done many things. I've been on the investing side for a little while, uh, investing in early stage protocols and startups. I was with a fund called Slow Ventures. Uh, I've worked with a number of DeFi projects over the years as an advisor or consultant, 0x, DYDX in the early days. Um, I've worked on enterprise blockchains. That was a whole stint of, of my <laughs> life and career. And uh, now I am uh, working on a project called Espresso. Espresso Systems is the company. And we are working on decentralized infrastructure for scaling solutions. Um, so I would say I started out, I think, very much Bitcoin oriented and very much like the applications of Bitcoin transitioned into kind of more financial applications on Ethereum. And I've been sort of zooming back out ever since then to land at this sort of infrastructure layer where I'm working now. Yes, which is kind of funny because I think that there are sort of two ways that people go about the ecosystem. You either start an infrastructure and get more app specific or you get you start app specific and and go down into the infrastructure. That's very true. Um, which I feel like I'm at the I started app. Now I'm intrigued by infrastructure. And we were talking before we started recording. I'm in my very early days of my infrastructure rabbit hole. Come on in. The water's fine. Join us. I'm a little bit scared. I, I, as we discussed, don't want to get lost in the sauce, but I feel like that's why I'm excited about this conversation. Um, because I think that 
in a lot of ways, the very like highly technical infrastructure is not super accessible to people. Totally. And I think part of it is just like there is a lot going on. And part of it is that, you know, many of these conversations are like there are about a thousand acronyms. They all seem to be random buzzwords. It's hard to tell what the hell people are talking about. Totally. Um, so and I'm very excited. And it's it back to applications too, a lot of the time. You know, you you go down this rabbit hole, you get lost in the proverbial sauce of the infrastructure <laughs> and you get, I think, kind of disconnected from, okay, why does this actually matter to users? What impact does this have on the nature of the applications that we can build? Um, and so that's definitely something that we at Espresso try to stay really connected to and thinking about because otherwise, yeah, you can wind up in just a mess of jargon and kind of, you know, philosophizing about, about the, uh, architecture of the technology just for its own sake. Yeah, totally. Um, okay. So I think I, I want to get into Espresso and what it means to have a shared sequencer and why that matters. I think in order to understand that we need to zoom way out, um, probably just like I submit a transaction on an application. I sign, you know, a transaction. What the hell is going on? Maybe we'll start with Ethereum and then we can get into the the L2 side of things. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, at a very basic level, and this is how I thought of it for years. This is how I thought of it for the first, say, nine years that I've been in this space and using these things. Um, you submit a, an app, a transaction, you know, via a smart contract or an application. Um, and that transaction uh, enters a mempool. So I think of this as kind of like a waiting room. Um, the transaction is waiting to get selected uh, by a proposer of, of the next block. Um, and so separately from your transaction, there's this mechanism happening wherein there's all of these nodes being run, all of these computers that are actually running the Ethereum software uh, and, and making the transactions actually happen. There are different rounds of elections that happen. So a node will get elected for each round to be sort of the leader, the proposer for that round. Um, and that proposer will then take transactions out of the mempool, validate them, check that everything looks legit in them, broadcast those to the whole network. Uh, and then finalize those as sort of canonical transactions that have been finished and settled and are agreed upon uh, by the L1. Um, so that is, again, the very high level of how you might think about a transaction flow working on Ethereum today. The realities of it get a little bit more complicated, and I suspect that we can get into that next. But Maybe I'll take a breath there. I've I've frequently thought we really need as an industry, like, I don't know if you ever watched Schoolhouse Rock, like I'm just a bill sitting on Capitol Hill where it takes yes. you through like how a bill becomes a law. I feel like we need that for Ethereum, like how a transaction becomes settled and agreed upon by the whole network. But. Yes, 1000%. Um, I love that idea. I feel like we, we need a Gitcoin grant for doing that. Yes, um, exactly. But yeah, that's a very good high-level overview of how things are supposed to work. 
Um, and of course, also when you are the proposer that is chosen um, and you validate the block and everything is all sort of checks out, you also get paid for doing that, right? So you you yes. have this like incentive system um, at, at the core that is built into Ethereum for people to like want to do this, yeah. for miners to want to do this. Exactly. And there's fees involved in this, you know, that's where your gas is going, things like this. Uh, exactly. So the incentives are an important piece of this. I'm glad that you highlight that, Chase. So that is all good and well, except for the fact that it turns out that you can make a lot more money doing a lot of other things on top of that, which is, yeah. I think, where we get into the more, the, the, the that's like layer one. Or I shouldn't say layer one because that's going to be a confusing way, way to frame this. Foundation. That's, yeah, that's the foundation. Outline. Now, yeah. so that's the, in theory, this is how this works. In reality, things are a little bit different. Um, can you can you give an, an intro on that? So maybe I'll start with a story to keep this a little more interesting than just, uh, than just talking infrastructure. But my first kind of realization as a user that all was not totally well with this system that I had in my head was during the 0x crowd sale when they were first creating a token, when they were first sort of going live. Um, I went to participate in it and to buy some 0x tokens from this auction that was happening. Uh, and of course, this was like the heyday of either 2016 or 2017. And, you know, there was massive interest in this. Everyone was trying to, it was like the Taylor Swift concert tickets. Everyone was trying to get some, some zero X token through this auction mechanism that was happening. And it sort of felt like, oh my gosh, like I've got to keep putting in like higher and higher fees to like try and get my transaction actually accepted. Um, you know, I thought that this was like a fair decentralized system. Like, what are the dynamics at play here? And it turned out that, of course, because this was this really kind of competitive competitive environment, the nodes running the Ethereum software, you know, they are run by actual humans who can be smart and competitive um, and, you know, good capitalist members of society. And so they were either inserting their own transactions with preference in order to buy up a whole bunch of zero X, you know, basically front running the Taylor Swift concert tickets. Um, or they were just asking for like astronomically high fees in order to get your transactions into the system. And so that was my, again, as a user kind of first introduction to the fact that, okay, there's actually a lot more at play here in terms of the ordering of transactions. You know, this is not just happening on what would have felt like a fair kind of first come first serve basis, although that gets hairy in and of itself. There are issues with any kind of first come first serve design or most of them that are out there today. I'm optimistic about um, the direction that some of them might go, but uh, this is my first interaction with buzzword alert sort of what has become known as MEV um, or maximally extractable value. And so this is value that, again, those participants who are running the system might be able to extract from the system 
by sort of intelligently or, you know, capitalistically uh, ordering transactions in a way that favors them. And it's most often it's not as sort of simple as just like, oh, I'm going to front run this auction because I think that, you know, these tokens are being sold at a lower price than they'll trade at later. It's more frequently sort of taking multiple sets of transactions and saying, okay, if I insert a transaction um, here in the middle of them, I can capture arbitrage between, you know, again, two decentralized exchange transactions, or perhaps I can front run a transaction if I see that it's being done um, at an unfavorable price, things like this. Uh, so again, it's not it's not as clean and simple as just like the transaction enters the waiting room and then gets picked up in in the order in which it entered. Yeah, I, I think it, things become really interesting from here because what it starts to to bring up in my head is this question around like, OK, so at a at a broad level, you as a user are now having to deal with like basically miners who should be like relatively neutral, but are no longer neutral because they're kind of playing this like weird meta game of like, okay, there's the base level game. And then there's like this other game where you actually could get screwed as a user. Um, it's, It's also this question of like, well, what does it mean that they should be neutral? Right. Because That was never sort of a promise to us in, you know, the Bitcoin white paper, in the design of Ethereum, et cetera. In fact, we always knew all along, like, oh, they're accepting fees. Part of the reason why this works is because there's this game theoretic around this. They're rational economic actors who want to keep the system running um, and want to keep it sound. Uh, But then, yeah, there are these sort of surprise dynamics that then we have to figure out as the architects of these systems, like, how do we want to approach this? How do we want to either change the incentives around and sort of accept things as they are or try and limit the behaviors of certain parties, et cetera? And so what we've seen crop up are all kinds of approaches to mitigate the negative effects of Again, MEV, this notion of extractable value from sort of uh, smart or clever ordering of transactions. Um, and one of the one of the kind of primary approaches to mitigating the negative effects for users of MEV, almost counterintuitively, has been the rise of more kind of specialized players who can come in. And run auctions for, you know, different high value transactions and and run auctions for the ordering of those transactions and getting those then accepted uh, by the proposer. And so this, again, buzzword alert, I won't take us too far into the sauce here, but if you've heard of the idea of proposer builder separation, it's this idea that we'll have specialized actors uh, who are building blocks and ordering transactions, again, in such a way that sort of makes maximal economic sense. Um, And that's a separate entity now from the node that gets elected for a given round of Ethereum's proof of stake, who's then proposing and broadcasting that block. And there's an interaction that happens between the builder and the proposer now. Um, And this is actually the case for how most Ethereum transactions work today. Uh, This has only sort of come about 
as a paradigm over the last several years, um, thanks in large part to Flashbots and others that uh, other companies that have been working on this. And again, it's slightly counterintuitive in a way because you might hear like, oh, there are these specialized players who are just like taking all the value. The idea is very much figuring out how to make the system as efficient as possible and then also figuring out ways to actually redistribute that value back to users and sort of fight perhaps monopolistic tendencies um, around this. But yeah, when I first found out about this, my mind was blown. I was like, I have no idea how anything works. I've been lied to all of these years. It's not actually that nefarious, rest assured, but this is indeed, again, how most of Ethereum actually does function today. Yeah, there's definitely this interesting dynamic where you kind of, and I've seen this on Twitter lately, there's there are people who are like, MEV is bad and it is taking advantage of users. And then there are people who are much more of the mindset, to your point about economic incentives, sort of saying, yeah. well, no, miners, miners have always been economically uh, motivated. And so it totally makes sense that this would evolve. And yes, there are some transaction, there are some ordering of instances where ordering of transactions feels particularly like immoral in the sense, not maybe immoral is not the right word, but in the sense that it's like, mm, yes, a user is just fully losing in this case. And um, that stinks. So I'm curious when you think about like some of the morality of this stuff and the conversation around that, um, how you approach it and how you think about it. Yeah. Well, I think it's first really important to acknowledge that there are no perfect solutions to this that we've come up with. So like, Naively, one might think, oh, okay, well, if we just did first come, first serve, then that that would be a much more fair system, right? In air in air quotes, because then you know it's not gameable and like no one is extracting value sort of unfairly. And if it just so happens that two transactions in a row, you know, one person ends up sort of on the right side of the deal then like, well, that's just the way that that the system is working here, um, you know, and there's not this dynamic of either the Ethereum validator themselves or a specialized builder entity, like extracting value from that. Okay, fine. But how these systems actually work is actually much more complicated than that, right? So you then get into the issues of actual physical co-location, right? Where you see this happen in finance even. Um, and this is why uh, Flashbots is called Flashbots to play on uh, the title Flash Boys, which was a novel, um, a, a true a true story though, about uh, these sort of Wall Street high frequency trader geniuses who figured out if they just co-located their infrastructure and their software, right next to where the NASDAQ exchange, for example, was running their infrastructure and their software, they could get there, they could see transaction flow coming and get there ahead of the transaction flow and be able to front run it. So even though it was sort of this like, oh, it's a fair system, right? It's actually not because you're always going to have, even if it's like literally a physical infrastructure advantage, you're always going to have people who are willing and able to pay for that advantage. Um, 
And that same premise applies. Obviously, we're not talking about the NASDAQ exchange here, but if you had, uh, you know, specialized players who would emerge, who are then co-locating with where a lot of the Ethereum infrastructure is maybe being run, um, then you'd have similar dynamics emerge. And this is something, again, I give a lot of credit to the folks at uh, Flashbots and, and you know the Ethereum Foundation, other entities that are thinking a lot about these things. So that's the first thing I want to say is there's no perfect solution. And so then as we think about morality or kind of philosophy of it or the user experience of it, then you start to have to think about, okay, well, what trade-offs do I want to make? Like, am I more comfortable with having this dynamic of, you know, this race to kind of co-locate with Ethereum infrastructure going on by probably just like really the hyper-specialized players? Um, Or am I more comfortable with a dynamic of having specialized entities crop up um, who, okay, are extracting some value, but the idea being, you know, that there's going to be a sufficiently competitive market around that, that it drives it um, down to be as small as possible and down to, you know, a, a really efficient environment. Um, to be honest, I am I, I am somewhat agnostic at this stage. I am not deep enough in this research or sort of, you know, the the implications of any of these approaches yet to have a really strong opinion myself as a user. Um, but I am very glad and grateful that all of this research is going on and that these are being, these issues are being addressed and, and uh, kind of discovered out in the open. And I think that in terms of, for me, where it is really valuable that we have this decentralized open source financial infrastructure that we're building, you contrast this and the dynamics around it to what happened with the OG like Wall Street Flash Boys dynamic, where no one knew that this was happening for a really long time. Again, it was like a few specialized firms that figured out this co-location technique and were just front running the whole market. I want to say for years before, you know, a discussion even actually happened around it. Um, And I think, again, like to me, that's sort of, that's like the sort of white knight morality of, um, of the, the infrastructure that we're all building in the industry that we're in. Yeah, totally. Um, It's always funny that So many things in the crypto ecosystem, to your point, are so transparent that sometimes it feels like we have way more problems than anyone else does. That's so true. That's But really, we just know. We can all see everything. (laughs) All our shit is out in in the open and everyone's like, that is not great. And I think that does push us forward, but it's definitely – it, it makes things um, that the perception of things be much worse than it actually is. It is yeah, it does create like an ongoing PR crisis for the industry, <laughs> yes. well, for sure. Which we're not very good at handling either. So no, just, no, indeed. <laughs> the last there are lots of layers. Um, but yeah, I, I think this sort of like MEV rabbit hole to me um, demonstrates the importance of ordering transactions and like how much that is something that that you do want to have a level of fairness um, and optimally this like efficiency around. Mm-hmm. Um, on that note, we get into the L2 side of things and we get into what Espresso is doing. Yes. Um, so maybe you can give, so that's happening on the Ethereum L1. 
The way that these things happen on L2s is a little bit different. Maybe first we can just like define L2s for the context of this conversation. And then we can talk about how um, transactions are actually submitted on L2s and then executed. Yeah, absolutely. So the fundamental idea behind L2s, I'll touch on two things perhaps. One is to remove as much of the load and burden on the actual Ethereum chain as possible while still driving the sort of integrity that the Ethereum chain can offer um, and the security that that it can offer in all of this. Uh, And so what L2s do as an approach to this is they basically kind of shard applications um, so that not every application is just running directly on the L1 and um, taking up resources from the L1, but applications can then exist in their own sort of separate environments where not everything has to be running direct to the L1. Um, You know, you can have a more kind of modular approach to things uh, where the execution of transactions doesn't all need to happen on Ethereum. Um, You know, the the data behind the transactions, even sort of data availability, um, buzzword alert, (laughs) doesn't need to necessarily happen on Ethereum, although most L2s are still using Ethereum for that today. Um, And this, this allows for much better scaling and specifically much uh, lower cost transactions for users, even in really high congestion environments. And so another kind of throwback story of mine was first playing around with CryptoKitties um, back, I want to say 2018. This were, you know, these were the first sort of, this was the first, one of the first NFT phenomenons. And it like it literally just broke Ethereum was what it felt like to me. Of course, everything was still running. Like there was no actual downtime that happened. But again, it was this thing where I was like, am I really going to pay like a $200 transaction fee in order to like mate my crypto kitty with somebody else's? Like, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> even, even in the crazy times of that period, that was uh, beyond the pale. Um And so that, again, as a user, like really just highlighted to me like, oh, the infrastructure here actually really does matter. And when people talk about scaling Ethereum, it's not just like a buzzword. It's not just an excuse to like start an infra project and go nerd out with your friends for a few years. It really does impact, again, the types of applications that we can have and use uh, on the platform. Um, And so, again, L2s have emerged as... I think the consensus most viable approach to actually being able to to scale Ethereum. And so today you have all of these L2s up and running and working, which is really exciting to see Arbitrum, um, Optimism, uh, Base, the Coinbase project, which just launched. These are all called optimistic rollups, um, which we can get into a bit more of what that means if you'd like. And then there's also another category of rollup called ZK rollups um, that uh, use more kind of the cryptographic mechanism uh, to to validate and, and show the validity of transactions. 
Um, and so, you know, Polygon is the leader in that space, CK Sync. Uh, Scroll has their main net forthcoming here soon um, and and others as well. It's really kind of exploded over the last couple of years. Yeah, maybe we can briefly touch on the difference between you kind of mentioned ZK rollups. Um, so maybe we can briefly touch on the difference between ZK rollups and optimistic rollups. Yeah, absolutely. So with rollups, um, again, they are still trying to derive as much sort of validation from the L1 or as much integrity of their system and transactions from the L1 uh, as possible. And so there are two different sort of approaches or mechanisms uh, for doing this. With um, ZK rollups, they use a uh, mechanism called a ZK proof, or uh, I think people are now calling it like a validity proof, um, because ZK is a little bit of a misnomer, but we're not going to get into that. Uh, but this is a mechanism wherein uh, the rollup basically runs a proof to demonstrate that um, that all of the transactions that have happened and that it's processed and validated uh, indeed check out, and then that proof can be submitted uh, to the L1. Um, optimistic rollups use a slightly different mechanism. Uh, they don't sort of try to achieve like succinctness of this proof. Instead, they rely on a challenge period, wherein basically there's a seven-day period during which a transaction could be challenged by a user or by another participant in the network. Um, and only at the end of that seven-day period then is the proof that all of the transactions were in fact legitimate uh, submitted to the L1. And without getting into too much detail, again, you can kind of just think of these as two different approaches uh, to derive, again, that integrity from the L1 in the system that removes a lot of the burden from Ethereum itself. And uh, optimistic rollups were kind of the most uh, accessible from a technological standpoint and the quickest to deploy, which is why Arbitrum and Optimism, the OP stack, et cetera, uh, were, were very quick to market. Um, even just a couple of years ago, people were talking about ZK rollups being like five years off, like this is a bit of a pipe dream. Well, all of these teams have proved that wrong um, because we now have a bunch of them live on mainnet today, which is pretty cool and exciting. So that's a little bit of the history of like why these two approaches uh, emerged. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, Forefront. Forefront launched in 2020 and holds a very special place in my heart as the first DAO that I ever contributed to. Since then, Forefront has become a steward of the crypto ecosystem, empowering Web3 explorers to create and participate at the frontier of collective creation on-chain. I subscribe to very few newsletters and Forefront is one of them because they just put out a ton of amazing content. They have essays, they have research reports, and they even do conversations with founders, but they're also incredible curators. Their newsletter is truly the best pulse on what's happening on the culture and creator side of crypto. And I actually use it to source guests often. Um, for those of you that might remember, I had Light, who's a crypto artist on the show a few episodes ago to talk about hypercultures. And that was actually an article that I originally found in the Forefront newsletter. So if you want to keep your finger on the pulse of these things, I cannot recommend the Forefront newsletter enough. You can subscribe at forefront.market slash subscribe. Seriously, you will not regret it. All right, let's hop back into the show. 
one quick little rabbit hole side note, and then I want to get into the sequencer side of things. Yeah. Um, people keep talking about on Twitter that fraud proofs have not been shipped yet. Everyone's upset about it, whatever. Where does that fit into the context of this? Fraud proofs fit into the the optimistic roll up sort of stack, right? Yeah, exactly. That's that's sort of the equivalent of like the ZK proof from the ZK side. That's what gets submitted to the L1 again to derive this integrity. So what I'll say about this is that building a rollup is really hard. I have not done it. I'm glad that I've not <laughs> done it. I'm glad that there are other people doing this because, oh my gosh, there is so much that goes into it. It's like building an L1, which like, think about that. Like L1s took years, you know, three, four years for like Cosmos, Solana, Algorand, like name an L1 none of them launched within, you know, a two year time span. All of them were like three, four year long roadmaps, but it's like building an L1 that also has to be backwards compatible with the entire Ethereum stack. Like there's so so much complexity that goes into this. So major kudos to the roll up teams for just like having a bias for action, getting a working product out there, getting a secure working product out there for the most part, you know, very few of them have had actual issues in terms of security breaches. But let's be honest as well, there have been some aspects of those roll-up roadmaps that have not been delivered on yet. And so one of these things that people talk about a lot is whether these rollups have implemented fraud proofs. And this does have implications, again, on kind of the soundness or security of the system and, and whether you can actually say that it's driving security from the L1. This is an important point. Um, and I think that where a lot of this consternation comes from is I think that a lot of people have like a very high level understanding of how an L2 works. And then they see something is on mainnet and they're like, okay, so this must be like a fully baked final product system. And there has been this kind of education that's had to happen. Of like, well, no, like this is a fully baked working system for users, but, you know, it is missing some of the fundamental pieces of the roadmap, which are forthcoming. I, I would say the best resource for this is a website called L2Beat. Um, maybe we can link to it in the show notes or something, but they recently came out with a sort of metrics dashboard for like how mature or how baked, I guess, an L2 is that I think is really great at giving users a transparent look at how far along an L2 is and sort of what level of trust then those users might want to have in the system. Um, and this, I think, is actually a good segue to sequencers because this is another area where, again, all of these L2s have built with sort of the best of intentions and with uh, these really uh, ambitious roadmaps around it, but have maybe not delivered yet on, on what they intend. Totally. Yeah. So the sequencer side of things, up until now, I guess it would probably be good maybe to define sequencers in the yes. context of L2s. Maybe we'll start there. Yeah, absolutely. So a sequencer in the context of an L2 does what it sounds like. It sequences the transactions and then, uh, you know, commits that sequence 
both back to the L2 and uh, also then therefore to the L1. Um, and as we've discussed, the sequence of transactions, the order of the transactions actually makes a really big difference. Um, and so it's the sequencer that is picking up transactions from that sort of mempool, from the endpoint uh, that the L2 gives to it, uh, is determining, again, what order the transactions will be in. And then, of course, that goes on to get sort of finalized, canonized, settled uh, by both the L2 and then, again, driving kind of the integrity from the L1 for that order. Totally. And who is currently running? Yeah. Well, this is a leading question, <laughs> but <laughs> set up. <laughs> currently, for the most part, there's like one sequencer for most of these L2s and it's being run by the teams behind the L2s, right? Like that's right. kind of happening. Yeah. And again, to be clear, like rollups are not hiding that this is happening. Like right. this is not, it's not nefarious. This is not nefarious. This is not like some big scoop of like, oh my gosh, the rollups, the rollups are centralized guys. Um, no, like we know, they know. Uh, and again, they have really ambitious roadmaps and they have shipped a lot already. And you know, in fairness to them, there is an argument to be made that A, well, okay, it's just transaction ordering and B, you know, you can't really say that like a sequencer can fully censor a transaction from happening here because you do have what a lot of L2s will call like an escape hatch mechanism where, you know, on an optimistic roll up after the seven day challenge period or whatever, um, you know, you can sort of escape to the L1 if you need to. So for example, if I was submitting a transaction to an L2 and my transaction was just getting ignored by the sequencer not getting picked up, then I would be able to still force the transaction to the L1. And so, you know, I do think that it's, uh, you can make the case that it's a reasonable design choice by L2s. Uh, to, you know, if you're going to start with something being centralized and just run by the entity themselves, then maybe, you know, a sequencer is an okay place to make that trade-off. That's the case that gets made a lot of the time. However, I think that there's a lot of dynamics that this doesn't account for. You know, for example, it might be prohibitively expensive to force your transaction back to the L1. There might be a huge time delay by which point, you know, you've missed the trade that you wanted to do, or you've missed the opportunity to participate in the game that you were trying to participate in. Um, and so there are these really problematic dynamics that we haven't seen a rise in force yet. But I think this is always kind of the case with any of this infrastructure is like, it's all fine that it's centralized or it's all fine that it has a backdoor until it's really not. And so a big part of our mission is to just get in front of that and say like, okay, let's, let's build a decentralized sequencer solution. Um, that is what the espresso sequencer is that L2s can plug into and let's remove this item from their roadmap and let's build in this protection uh, for users that doesn't exist today. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting point around like, I, I feel like in the very early stages of any of the things in crypto that happen, there are always people who are like, 
this is going to be a problem and I know it's going to be a problem and no one really listens. Yeah. And then ultimately it becomes a problem. And then everyone's like, oh my God, espresso just popped up. They're, they're solving this problem. And it's kind of like the overnight success type of, or I forget what the saying is, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like you work for years and then only to become an overnight success, right? Totally. Yes. Um, and so I think that's like a very interesting dynamic here. And I also think to be clear, I hope that doesn't happen though. Like I hope <laughs> that we don't get to a point where there's like a crisis and it turns out yeah. that one of the major L2 sequencers is like censoring transactions or, you know, what, like engaging in monopolistic behaviors, like price gouging fees. Like these are the other things. It doesn't have to be the extreme of censorship. There are other things that can happen, but, and you know, a lot of people will, derive comfort from the fact that like most of the major L2s are like reputable teams, you know, people know them, they're venture backed, et cetera. And I personally, as a user, derive a lot of comfort from that. But, you know, if the last year of experience is anything to go on, also just what this industry is sort of founded upon as principles, I think that's not a reliance that we want to have for a very long time here. So totally. I mean, especially when like the entire, it's kind of funny because the minute that you start to make these trade-offs, particularly when they're not like necessary trade-offs, like there's, there is not an L2 that's going, we're, we're totally set with like having, with, with doing all of the sequencing forever. Like everyone seems to be on board that you want to decentralize sequencers. Um, But particularly when that's the case, it, it becomes interesting because the people way above, way like higher on the stack who are, you know, building consumer applications, you're selling consumers and end users on this idea that like everything is verifiable and you don't have to trust anyone or any team. And so there's kind of a funny dynamic where it's like any trade-off we make along the way, we, we slowly erode the statements that we're able to make at the application layer. Exactly. Um, no, that's And we true. often... We talk like everything is fully decentralized, but in reality, a lot of this infrastructure um, is is quite centralized. And I'm curious if you have like a gut take on why that is the case. Like, why don't we talk more about these things when we harp so much on decentralization? And then a lot of these things are actually kind of not quite what we promise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the way I think about it is we always have these moments where it's almost like, you know, in a crime scene, they come in with like a black light. And suddenly yeah. you can see where like all of the blood was cleaned up. <laughs> I've watched too many movies. I've never actually <laughs> seen real life. But I kind of feel like that's what happens every so often with Ethereum, where like we talk about it and think of it all as like totally decentralized and you know, this totally sound, credibly neutral system. And then something happens and we come in with the black light and we're like, oh shh, that's centralized, <laughs> that's centralized. This is, you know, this party is engaging in monopolistic behavior because they can. That's a problem. All of these types of things. Um, I think that the reason why, firstly, why we make these trade-offs at the infrastructure layer is because it's really hard to achieve Web 2 level UX without making a few of these trade-offs. Right. And, you know, I've talked to all of the L2s and you talk to them, you know, you ask them, like, 
what is what is the biggest risk to you of decentralizing your sequencer? You know, if I were to hand you a solution for it on a silver platter tomorrow and okay, there are like, you know, security risks of doing that kind of migration, et cetera. But normally the first thing they'll all say is, well, our users are used to really fast pre-confirmation times. Um, you know, they're used to, uh, you know, the type of throughput and low costs that we can give them by centralizing a few of these components. We need to make sure that we're not compromising on that UX because they've gotten used to it as they should. This is, that should not be a, an unreasonable thing, but it does make it a really tricky job to come up with an architecture that you can both credibly say is decentralized and offering sort of credible neutrality and anti-monopolistic um, protections and all of these things without making dramatic trade-offs on that front. And so that's been a huge challenge for us of architecting this system, right? Um, it has uh, gone into pretty much every decision that we've made, including around what consensus mechanism to use. So, you know, there are some kind of popular proof of stake mechanisms that uh, have become sort of the default out there, like Tendermint, which uh, was developed by the Cosmos team. People are always like, why didn't you guys just use Tendermint? And it's like, because Tendermint wouldn't offer the kind of fast pre-confirmations that, that users are asking for here. Um, and so it is it is a really hard problem, but it's been a cool one to work on, I think, in large part, because we can tie it back to applications and users. It's not just lost in the sauce of, of the technology. It's very rare that you can claw your way out of the sauce and actually yeah. understand what's going yeah. on. Yeah. And empathize with end users. I mean, on that note, I'm curious, it feels like every, at least in my perception, and I would be curious if this resonates with you, I feel like every cycle we kind of learn more about what needs to be central, what needs to be decentralized and what can be centralized. Yeah. Um, certain types of like application level infrastructure, for example, feels like it can be centralized. Whereas certainly as you go deeper down the stack, it feels like maybe it makes more sense to decentralize it. But I'm curious in your head, do you have like a framework for when it's okay to allow something to be centralized um, at any part of the stack? And when it's like, no, we, we really need to be, we need to be particular about this and we're okay with making certain trade-offs as a result. Yeah, I think that the way that I think about it is, firstly, can a monopoly arise here? Can, or even can collusion happen? You know, can a group of nodes form a little cabal and collude and price gouge users and charge them exorbitantly high fees to get their transactions in? Um, or indeed, if it's centralized, can that party just say like, well, I'm in control here. I am the captain. So either you're going to pay me this fee or not, um, and and kind of hold users hostage. And that, I think, is something that's that's overlooked or not talked about enough. Like, we always go straight to the censorship resistance thing, which matters a lot. Um, you know, it certainly mattered to my colleague in Argentina who was using Bitcoin to, to get his money out of the country. So I don't discount that. But I do think that we always jump straight to censorship resistance and forget that one of the great parts of the invention of Bitcoin and, and these systems um, 
now obviously Ethereum is the most relevant that that I'm working on is the fact that it defends against monopoly and and collusion like this. Um, So that's the first thing I always think about. And then I start to get into kind of like the credible neutrality questions and, you know, okay, well, can we like, in the case of block builders, again, you know, can we create a sufficiently competitive marketplace here where, you know, uh, sort of fees will be driven down to zero and we won't end up with this sort of monopolistic or, or colluding system. And there are some gray areas, I think, in, in all of that still that are areas of research and are hard to fully reason through, at least um, at least for me. But uh, I think, again, the mo- issues of monopoly and then the issues of, yeah, kind of censorship and credible neutrality are, are what comes to mind for me. Right. Yeah. Part of me also wonders if like some of this is kind of a, um, in any system where you have centralized actors, you will likely have the potential for like an emergent monopoly, basically. I guess that's yeah. not fair to say, but in a lot of systems, it's true. It feels like part of the distinction in crypto also is like, how many things need to happen for that to actually be the outcome? And in the case of like, you're building a social network where you have curators who could technically build a bunch of, like that, odds that that happens are so low that at the application level, yes, you should be designing for those things, but it's the odds that you get there are just so much lower. Whereas like on the infrastructure side, especially because you already have, um, economically motivated parties who are like effectively faceless in the sense that there's no social there's I mean technically on chain maybe but there isn't really that same pressure and um, set of expectations around like okay well we need to get to a certain amount of users for this to happen within our app and so it it does kind of make me wonder on that level as well how much you really need to be um, designing at the application level for monopolies versus these much more like, weirdly, the word raw comes to mind. Like yeah. <laughs> miners are much more raw than than a random Web3 social network. Yeah, no, I think that that's I think that that's spot on. And I mean, I think that we've seen interesting examples, though, where validators, miners, in the case of Bitcoin, uh, do suddenly find themselves wrapped up in like social dynamics of a system of, you know, whether a given upgrade is going to be accepted and and things like this, or, you know, whether a rollback is going to happen in the case of, you know, 2016, the Ethereum DAO, et cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that, I think that it's important not to underestimate like the social consensus aspect of it, but I also think that it's important to guard against relying on that when you're talking about the infrastructure layer, for sure. Totally. Because a lot of that just ends up undermining what we're doing when you when you rely too heavily on social yeah, structures. Exactly. So, I mean, our goal with the Espresso Sequencer is to offer a decentralized sequencing solution to L2s. There's also uh, exciting ideas we have around that in terms of how this can also help with secure and efficient interoperability between L2s, because that's going to be, I think, a huge space, especially as we see suddenly hundreds of projects cropping up, building their own L2 systems. They're all going to have to figure out how to call each other, bridge to each other, et cetera. Um, and 
a sequencer is a shared sequencer is not a silver bullet to that, but I think it certainly helps. One important um, note here, though, is that we are not we are not opinionated. We're totally agnostic when it comes to whether we interact with like MEB solutions like dedicated block builders or whether, you know, an L2 wants to use a first come first serve solution on us. There are a lot of proposals out there that do try to mitigate some of the dynamics around co-location I mentioned. So we are not sort of, we call ourselves like a dumb or a lazy sequencer in the sense that we are not trying to be particularly smart in the infrastructure that we're building here. We're really just on kind of the proposer side of that. And that is candidly as a builder, kind of a nice place to be um, <laughs> because it, it does allow us again to stay really kind of open-minded to all of these different solutions. You know, I think one or a few of which will emerge as being uh, the, the best for users. Yeah. I mean, especially when we're so early in like the L2 development phases, totally. Um, it feels like optimizing for optionality over being super opinionated um, makes a ton of sense. And like, who knows how many L2s there will ultimately be? I guess one, one question as we wrap up, um, Espresso succeeds. You have tons of L2s using shared sequencers. We've decentralized the sequencer. Woo. Yay. What does that world look like? What from sort of where we're at now to the bull case, um, what's possible? Yeah. I mean, I think the high level vision is web two UX, web two scale with web three security and web three guarantees around, again, being anti-monopolistic, incredibly neutral and, and all of these things that we like to talk about. Um, I mean, I think what that actually looks like and the role that we play with that. I always like to go to this uh, sort of metaphor of a music festival where like a music festival is fundamentally just like a venue, right? But at that music festival, you've got like big artists playing and then smaller artists showing up who are just happy to be there to like get discovered and get new fans and so forth. And I think that that's a cool dynamic that I hope the espresso sequencer plays at some point where, you know, hopefully we support a few of like the big kind of blue chip L2s that have tons of transaction volume. And then we are also a bit of infrastructure that smaller L2s or smaller app specific rollups that are developing come and then are able to sort of get some visibility or, you know, bootstrap some liquidity uh, piggybacking off of like the, the bigger kind of major L2s. Um, I think that that's a vision of this that, I'm really excited about because it's hard to squint today and see like this world of hundreds of L2s coexisting without fragmentation, without that actually being a hit to UX. But I think that we can move in a direction where actually all of these things kind of come together in a nice way that both solves for decentralization um, and also solves for, yeah, what that what users end up feeling and and experiencing here. I love the music festival vibe. Um, (laughs) Jill, this was such a wonderful conversation. I so appreciate the accessible approach to exploring a lot of this stuff. Where can people learn more about you and Espresso? 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we're on Twitter. I am very on Twitter. Um, I'm <laughs> at Jill R. Gunter on Twitter. Um, and Espresso is on there at Espresso Sys, Espresso S-Y-S. Uh, we're also at EspressoSys.com. Um, if you're working on an L2 or an app chain, uh, or if you're uh, potentially interested in being a node operator on the network, definitely get in touch with us. We've got a type form on there um, on the website, or again, just hit me up in uh, my DMs or the DMs of the company and we'll get back to you. Beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This was so fun. Thank you, Chase. My pleasure. 